first of all, I'll say that we don't have it as difficult as black women. Like, as for that one, like, when I see some of the experiences of black women in in workplaces, and especially what my wife goes through, I'm like, I don't know how black women do it. We'll be back shortly to talk about building your own table. But first, here is a message from our sponsor, Mindset Shift. Have you ever told yourself, I don't think I can do this, or they'll never go for it, or I'm not a good enough leader? Words that my guest today actually shares on the podcast. But the things that you tell yourself that hold you back, imagine if you could remove all those boundaries just by holding them up and actually looking at them, figuring out where they come from and how to tackle them. At Mindset Shift, that's what we do. We help innovative and ambitious leaders that want to make extraordinary things happen for their teams, for themselves, for their business and their culture. We help people unlock their growth. Through actionable coaching, workshops, leadership development, facilitation or speaking, we create foundational people over profit environments. The kinds where productivity and innovation soar and culture inclusion and equity are at the heart of all your operations. When you're ready to step out your box and take your organization to the next level, contact us today at www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where I interview leaders not defined by position or title. Everyday people who lead their lives in extraordinary ways. And on this podcast, they share their stories, their life lessons and practical tools in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are everyday leaders. Today, I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Mr. Samuel Brooksworth, who is the co-founder of Remotely. Um, how are you doing, Samuel? I'm very good. How are you? I'm blessed. I am blessed. Um, it's an absolute pleasure just to have this conversation on, on the podcast. We were talking offline. They were all just going back and forth. And I was like, you yeah. know what? Yeah. <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> let's, let's, let's do this properly. You know, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, let's yeah, do yeah. this properly. <laughs> I was going to say, actually, congratulations on the premises move. You guys have moved again. Yeah, yeah. Honest, honestly, again, like we're saying offline, um, God has been good. Genuinely, God has been good in in the way in which we've grown and the way the business has grown so quickly. It's um, sometimes I'll, I'll sit in my office and I'll look around and I'll be like, just this time last year I was on furlough, like I was on furlough, just trying to figure out what what I wanted to kind of step into next, whether I wanted to stay. Within an organisation, work my way up. Whether I want to stay in the UK, um, a lot of question marks. And I'm looking at myself a year later, and I'm now sat in office with 40 plus staff around the world. And I'm like, how did that happen? But um, it's, it's 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 been a quick but very very enjoyable journey. So yeah, you know, and that's even even more reason for us to to go back and to to understand the come up from from where you were to even to, to how you even got to Ghana in the first place yeah because when you were sharing that story with me I was like wow this is mad so let's let's go back 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 to like your your door-to-door sales days yeah wow wow you're, you're taking me right the way back yeah so um you know I I, I I talk about door-to-door sales but when I talk about my sales career my first job was when I was 16 at Marks and Spencer's. And um, for me, that was eye-opening because the working world because Andrew and I, my twin brother, um, those of you who know, we grew up in the Reverend Minister's household. And those of you who know what it's like to grow up in the Reverend, we're talking offline again. My dad uh, was an apostle in the Church of Pentecost, which came off the branch, well, came right out of Elam. And um, growing up in Reverend Minister's household, um, there are a lot of things that are catered for you, like people or church members come to the house, you know, your pampers growing up in it. So you, you don't really see or feel the adversities of life. <laughs> so, so coming out of that into the real world and working, um, that for me was an eye-opener. 
But then going into real sales, like like to door to door sales, street fundraising, I, I just knew inside that I wanted to really be a part of sales. But sales when I was younger wasn't easy, and um, the street fundraising days was difficult. Being abused on the streets, people swearing at you, that that resilience you built up, and then going to different industries. I worked in um, events, um, selling um, conferences and sponsorships. Um, I've worked as car salesperson selling cars and everyone knows the um the stigma that's attached to car salespeople greasy and just very slimy and slippery as a car salesperson uh, worked in material handling selling heavy lifting materials forklift trucks power tools and all that kind of stuff worked in the media industry so i've had a very very varied sales career but each and every experience I've had, I've seen myself progress, um, leading teams, being an area sales manager, generating millions at every organization I've worked at. So um, the, 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 the growth and the journey has been um, steady. Um, but looking back now, I can see why I was led into each role and how I've grown from there and the things I've kind of learned from each industry, which has kind of all accumulated, in, accumulated into the salesperson. Down today. Why? What's it about sales that you liked so much from from when you were young? You know what? Um, I think it was the aspect of understanding people, listening to people, and providing something that would benefit them, or the challenge of seeing someone who doesn't see the benefit of something, or necessarily want something and persuading them or showing them that this is beneficial for them. And I've always been an extremely competitive person, and that's the kind of environments, environment sales environments I've always been in. So competing with people, beating people, seeing my name was number one in the sales charts, seeing myself as the individual um, always yeah, winning, being number one, <laughs> making the most sales. Um, I, I, I loved it. I, I loved being in the environments. I, I loved being the number one salesperson. I loved um, being in competitive environments. And um, yeah, that's that. I think that's why I liked it growing up. Growing up, as I'm older, it's a bit different. But growing up, yeah, I loved it. <laughs> Is your twin brother also competitive like you? Um, mm, yes and no. We were competitive growing up. But I think Andrew's a lot more. Andrew's a very laid back guy. Probably one of the nicest people not even being biased, but he's my twin brother. He's probably one of the nicest people I've ever met in my entire life. He's a very, very, very nice guy. And um, he's a lot more laid back. He's a lot more chilled. Um, yeah, apparently he was a good twin growing up. I was an evil twin growing up. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Who said this? Was this from what? Your parents? Your friends? Like, what did no, that come no, no. <laughs> Definitely not from parents, no. I think in school, because Andrew's very, such a nice guy, People always try to take advantage of him or try to like um, use his good, um, or take advantage of his good nature. So I, I just realized very quickly that we couldn't both be like all smiley and goofy, that one of us had to like take on that, that even, evil villain role. So that, that always ended up being me. So I'd end up going around beating up kids or trying to defend Andrew, defend us, or make sure that you no know, one was taking advantage. Whereas Andrew was like, yeah, it is, oh, yeah, whatever. So he ended up being seen as the good twin, and I was the evil one because I was always, always getting into arguments and fights. But, um, uh, I'm, I'm no longer the evil twin. Now that we're older, I'm, I'm a good guy as well. So we're all good. <laughs> <laughs> right. Go back to go back to sales. Yes. You were, were talking about this online. We were on my research. I found out you were an apprentice. Yeah. And I went when went on YouTube. I did a little Google's, and I was like, <laughs> "Oh yeah!" Now I remember. Because I did it at first, it did not, it did not cluck at all. And yeah. I saw it, I was like, okay, now I remember. How'd you find that experience? Um, probably one of the best experiences of my life. Um, going through the whole interview process. So even getting onto that show, um, my wife used to watch it every, when the show would on, she would watch it every week. And every week, I think it was a Wednesday at the time, I'd hear just noise in the background, people arguing. And I'd ask her, what are you watching? She said, it's The Apprentice. I think you should watch it. I'm like, no, I'm all right. I don't want to watch The Apprentice. And then one night I started watching it with her and I just got drawn into it. I think it was season 
series 11 I think I watched and I just got drawn into it there's a guy called Scott Saunders who was absolutely phenomenal in that season series sorry we ended up quitting in week I think six or seven and I got drawn into it I loved it and at the end of the series season sorry series no series <laughs> she said to me I should apply I was like nah I'm gonna go into national tv and absolutely disgrace myself I am good I'm good <laughs> No, it'd be a great way to get yourself out there, you know, to network with um, individuals that you should want to be networking with and so, so forth. And be, be, being the, um, 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 the obedient husband I am, I said, yeah, you know, what, I'll do it. <laughs> so I applied. Well, she did most applications, said, I'll send it off if you let me. She did it. Um, and yeah, got through the interview process and ended up getting onto the show. So the experience in the end was just amazing. Like everything you see on TV is real like you're given 20 minutes to get ready in the mornings very stressful pressure environment what people don't realize is that you're given options of what you can and can't do on tasks so when people are always asking why would you have done that why did you do this um this doesn't make sense you look you look silly so and so forth we're given options of what we can and can't do so it's, it's and obviously looking at it now i didn't know that before myself but of course that's what makes for entertaining tv if we're just able to do things as and when we want to it doesn't make entertaining tv but when you're given options of what you can and can't do of course it's entertaining so uh, some of the options we were given were just like oh my goodness i know i'm going to look like a clown on tv but it's the best of the better of two evils so let me just pick this option i keep it moving and obviously when people are watching back why would you do that blah 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 it's like listen there's options and blah 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 but you know but it, it, was, it was a great experience i absolutely loved it and it's 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 opened um good connections afterwards in what way um so career wise it probably wasn't as good because you go into roles in different organizations and people um again having watched the show will have a certain opinion of you going into the organization which is completely false it's a tv show but people sometimes struggle to separate a tv show to reality and then but in my personal life in regards to business networks it's enabled me to meet with and be in rooms conversations and with people that i wouldn't have been able to have been if not for the platform it gave me so in that aspect it's been great um, but career-wise it, it it wasn't it it really did hold back my career um, but in regards to my business life it's, it's been phenomenal Mm-hmm. Is that how you got into writing as well? Or were you doing that before you wanted the show? No. So with writing, that was pretty much when I when I joined The Guardian um, as an account director. Um, there was an individual within the organisation who, um, he's, he, he was editor um, in The Guardian, and he, he, he wanted me to write um, an article piece in regards to uh, my experience on The Apprentice and what it's like being a black man in business in the UK. So um, I was like, you know what, I, I've always enjoyed writing and I've always been a, a decent writer. I've always been able to articulate myself better in writing than in speaking, always. But um, I'd never be given the opportunity to write. Yeah, you know, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a decent writer, I'm a decent, decent writer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all right, right, so... Well, once I was able to really get my thoughts onto paper, I thought, you know, I actually really enjoy this. So I started writing more articles, but um, that's how I got into writing, through my work at The Guardian. Oh, do you still write now? Um, not as much as I did before. Um, I should probably do more. I probably will at one point start doing more writing. But, um, right now, it's a very busy, busy time with business, so when, when I do get free time, then I would try to get back onto it. And what was your experience as a black man in the UK? Wow, wow, that's that's a, that's a heavy question. <laughs> that is a heavy you know? question. <laughs> you know what? Um, first of all, I'll say that we don't have it as difficult as black women. Like as for that one, like when I see some of the experiences of black women in my in workplaces and especially what my wife goes through i'm like i don't know how black women do it because 
if some of the instances that I've seen my wife especially go through at work, if I was to go through it, I'd have snapped a long time ago. But as a black man, um, I can speak for myself and the individuals that I've worked with and things that I've seen in my career. It's mm. it, it it's difficult because you will be fully capable of doing something. You have all the knowledge, the experience, but you will not be given opportunities because people will assume that you just can't do it. And when I look at my career um, and I look at all the things I was able to accomplish, I could have accomplished a lot more if I had been allowed to progress within certain organisations. But I always found that um, I was never given the opportunities to do so. And um, the UK is very um, covertly... um, Racist would be the right word, but these days when you use the word racist, it it doesn't carry um, the right power because a lot of people just, the word's been thrown out so much over the last year. It's the correct word to use, by the way. It's the correct word to use. But um, it's been thrown out so much that people just, as soon as you say it, people instantly like, oh, I'm not racist. They take offense to it rather than really understanding what it is you're trying to say. And... um, when you look at most organisations across the UK and you look at the lack of diversity in leadership in all these organisations, you start to see that there is a, a pattern and a trend. And it just gets to the point where, yes, people could turn around and say, oh, but the UK is this percentage of black people, so of course there aren't going to be that many black people in top leadership positions and so and so forth. Well, even if we were to look at the stats from that perspective, it's still disproportionate in regards to the amount of black people that are in the UK and leadership positions. If we look at London then, for example, if we're saying that majority of London ethnic minority, then most organisations in London should have majority ethnic minority bosses, but they don't. So from every angle you look at it, there's a disparity. And when you look at all reports, um, whether it's um, um, diversity pay gap results, whether it's pay for ethnic minorities compared to our Caucasian counterparts. Um, every aspect of business life in the UK shows that there's clear disparities where we're either underpaid or we're not promoted or we're not given the same opportunities. When, we're hand- when our CVs are handed in, um, we're um, not as likely to get roles or given opportunities as our, our, as our white counterparts. And there's all these stats show it, but not much is done. So as, as a black man in business in the UK, it's... It's difficult. It's difficult, and we, we we say it's smiling because we we we've all lived it for a long time. It's like we're used to it. It's sad to say, but we're, we're used to being black men in the UK in business. And all you can do is look at the situation and smile sometimes because being angry and fighting against a system that has been established for centuries. It's like there will be change. It will take a while. But as a black man in business in the UK, the best word to describe it as is difficult. <laughs> it's, it's not easy. It's difficult. Nah, definitely, definitely agree. That's, that's a great, great word to actually use to describe it. And like you said, the anger doesn't, doesn't serve you in a sense. It just makes your life a lot harder. So it's like, okay, what can I do to change things? And what can I do to navigate the system that I find myself in to make sure that I do as much as other people might try and put me down, I do rise and I push through and I thrive and I push against that current that's always trying to trying to knock you knock you back. And I guess one of the great ways of even doing it is what you've done, you and um, Kwame, creating remotely in Ghana. And just before we jump into that, I just want to, how did you, that whole journey of going from UK to, to Ghana, what was that like for you? Because that's your wife played another role in that in that whole situation as well. So yeah, I just want to delve into that one a bit as well. Yeah, you know what? This, this is probably the first time I'm going to speak about this in depth because I think I've never actually really done it. Um, during the pandemic, um, first and foremost, Kwame and I, we, we, we've been involved in startups for a while. So um, with myself, um, I, I, I used to hold workshops, seminars, masterclasses. Um, through an organization I started called Build and Master, where it would help entrepreneurs um, who want to set up their businesses 
understand how to do so through the proper means. So through um, marketing, um, law, business strategy, and, and, and really get them to understand, and finance, sorry, and get them to understand how to set up their businesses. And we helped well over 100 entrepreneurs get started in their businesses, will set up their businesses. And that was a phenomenal experience and seeing these people have an idea and taking the idea to actually form a business. Likewise, Kwame was part of an organization called Unilad when there were about five staff. And he took them from five staff and 300,000 pound turnover to north of 200 um, staff and um, 10 million. Well, the actual figure is 14 million. He told me the other day, which I was like, I'm sorry. And uh, I keep saying five years, but it's actually four years. In 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 in, in four years, he took them. What well, he he helped he helped them take it from that point to that point. So our staff, we, we've got a lot of staff experience. Um, so we were like, you know what? During the pandemic, there are so many businesses that are just struggling, but we've got all this knowledge of how to help organisations. So let's just do something to help them let's try and think of something that will help support them likewise um, we're both Ghanaians and um, Kwame was born in Ghana grew up in the UK I've been going to Ghana back and forth since 2017 because again the missus forced me to go back and forth because I didn't really want to initially but she was like oh Sam you need to go to Ghana you need to go to Ghana I was like nah I'm good and eventually when I've gone I'm now completely in love with Ghana um, but um, she was like let's keep going back so I've been going back and forth and I've seen that Ghana is Oh, such a beautiful, beautiful country with the most amazing people, the most amazing culture, um, but just with a lot of young people who are seriously overqualified. And when I say like seriously overqualified, Ghanaians love studying. They will do degree upon degree upon degree, the master's, PhD, like just study, you know everything, but there are no jobs for them to do things. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Like they're just going from degree to degree to master to master to this to that, but there are no opportunities. So because of because they don't want to sit around, they'll keep studying. So Kwame's like, there must be something we can do to really marry these two, get these young, skillful people to work for organizations in the UK. So we've been brewing over the idea for a while, but I think the catalyst for us setting up when we did was number one, my career. Um again, I was on furlough. Um, I was due to go back to work for the organization later on in the year, um, which again, gave me time to really reflect and think of what I wanted to do. One of the main reasons was that again, um, career progression. Um, I saw myself in organizations where I knew I was fully capable, I'd, I'd overperformed, I'd done what was required of me. You go for the promotion opportunities and some somehow um, you weren't able to, you know, step up in certain roles. And I suppose the, um, I don't know, sometimes when you're in the UK for a long period of time and you're, you're constantly rejected, you start to think, is it me? Like, am I the problem? It, am I, and I'm the kind of person that, I like to see things from all perspectives. I like to see from other person's perspective. Why is it that they didn't hire me? The business perspective, maybe there's, there's, there's something that I wasn't able to see that they hired this individual over me. Yes, I did like, over £200,000 worth more of sales, but maybe I'm missing a certain degree of what I potentially could have done. Like, you start to overthink things and you start to disqualify disqualify yourself, from, which a lot of people relate to. You start to disqualify yourself from positions you know you can do. And I, I think I got to a point where I was like, I applied for one position, I didn't get it. And I was like, why am I fighting for roles that People can't see my value. They, they cannot see what I can bring to businesses. I've got all these ideas and ways to help this organization genuinely generate millions upon millions of pounds. And they're just discrediting everything I say and putting me to the side. What's the point? Like, they don't see my value. Um, so, Kwame, like, let's just do something. Let's do something where we can just put our skills to use and we can help people. We can help people get jobs, but we can also support businesses that really require the support. That's when we started remotely in September 2020 is when we registered it. So when we registered it, I we've helped loads of businesses get funding. So we started going out for funding. Nobody was giving us money. And we were like, eh? Ah, these guys have all this experience. Like, nobody, like, as in, would reach out to people, would reach out to um, all these um, accelerator incubators, VCs, we reach out to them, VCs that we'd helped other businesses, again, 
white businesses raise money for. We're now coming back to them. And they're like, yeah, we see what you've done previously for all these other organizations, but you two as founders, mm. and we're like, huh? That makes no sense. Wow. So we started speaking to um, the venture capitalists that support black founders. And again, the same thing, like just knows. And we're like, this, 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 this is it. It doesn't really make sense. Like, we, we, we need support, but we're not getting support from anywhere, from any VCs, from anybody. And again, um, my wife, people around us were like, why don't you guys just get started? Why don't you just start it? Like, why do you need the money? And we're like, obviously, naturally, the way we think, we wanted to hit the ground running from a grand scale. Like, just do the things we're doing now, but from the beginning. And someone's like, just start, just start, just start. So we're like, you know what? Let's just start. So we started initially. The idea was to have the virtual assistants, virtual assistants, or the staff working from office from the beginning. But because we couldn't afford the office, we started letting them work from home initially. They started working from home in November. We hired our first VA in November. She she was working from home, and she was killing it. She was killing it, like doing so well. And then we hired a remote sales team, who were commission only initially. Um, and this again was part of like. Yeah, so some things I'd experienced or seen or learned during my career, like management, all the different strategies and techniques, just got different teams involved to help grow the business really quickly. Got a remote sales team who would go out and would get more clients for us and they would do it on a commission only basis. That brought in more clients, the VAs, then we had to hire more virtual assistants. We brought in more business people, their great work businesses were referring us other businesses. So when I came back to Ghana, again during my annual enjoyment. Um, celebrations in December, I come out with the missus and I'm seeing how the staff are working remote. I'm like, this cannot work. They need an office space ASAP. Now, Kwame and Obed had already been, Kwame had been to Ghana and he had been looking at office spaces with Obed, but some of the prices they were giving were extortionate, like ridiculous prices for office spaces. So as you know, in West Africa, they want everything up front, either six months up front or a year up front. And we we don't have that kind of money. Our first package was £795 in November. You guys are asking for a good six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty thousand pounds up front. Like, yo, we can't do that from the money we've generated from the business so far. So then um, it got to a point where we were looking for office space and eventually Obed, our operation director, negotiated a really good deal. And even in that, me coming out here, when a lot of the buildings would hear my voice, the way they would try and bump me, like mm-hmm. initially they'd give a quote to Obed, I would come suddenly the um the foreign attacks would be added so that's what i like to call it the foreign attacks and what was it negotiate negotiate to open at one cost suddenly it's like ah you, you get allow me i'm got the funny thing is i speak tree i understand it like but obviously when you say things your pronunciation when i say things they can hear mm, bb boom or as i say in tree bb boom something's in there like i, I can see these guys are fully He's not a full-blooded guy, but I am. But he's, he's, he's not born in red here. So they just add their foreign UK tax to the, to the prices. And I was like, oh, goodness. But eventually, we managed to negotiate a really good deal at a really big building in, in, in Ghana, which, again, that was great how we got this building. And we got our first office space. And we thought we'd be here for, like, a year. And the teams grew, has, well, grew so quickly that we filled out that space in five months. And then we had to move downstairs, which we are now, the fifth month of May, we've had to move downstairs. And it's just, the growth has been phenomenal, but it's just because we put a lot of trust and faith in the individuals we've, 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 we've employed to work with us. And they've just shown us right. They've shown that they're capable of performing tasks to the highest level if given opportunity. And Kwame and I will be forever grateful for them for what they've been, been able to accomplish in such a short space of time and what they'll continue to accomplish. That's that's amazing, man. And I think that phrase, just start, is one I love to use all the time. That's when people are like, oh, how do I get things right? I'm like, you need to just start. You don't need yeah. to have every single thing figured out. You don't need to, like, whatever little that you have that you can do something with, that gets you going. That's the momentum. And then once you start doing that, the other avenues and other doors will open up to you. The right people will come along and support you because they see that you've taken that initiative to just actually get going and as you guys have seen from from your progress and your growth you guys getting started and now you're you're expanding and growing and you're doing amazing work and it's 
something I actually mentioned that when you went out there, you had a look, and you saw there was a lot of education, but there was no access for them to actually to utilize that education. What was it that stuck out to you for you to want to do something about that? Because most people go back to Ghana yearly or pre-COVID anyway, and they see what's going on, but nothing ever really sticks. And let me do something about it. So why was it that for you when you saw that? when your partner saw that you wanted to change that I'm not sure to be honest with you I think certain burdens just place on your heart and you're never too sure why um, I don't know why it bothered us so much that there all these overly qualified individuals weren't in work I, I can't explain why it bothered us so much um, it just did we were just like it's not fair it's not fair why are so many individuals out of employment in Ghana it's not fair why they're not being given the same opportunities, though they're equally, if not more qualified, it's not fair. Why right now, the way the world, the way the world was, everybody's working remotely. If there are opportunities to be had, why are all the remote working roles going to individuals, mainly in the UK and the US? They're not more qualified than individuals here in Africa. Why is there a stigma that Africans or certain Africans can't do certain things to the same level as they are in the Western world? And it really, really bothered us. So that's where we were like, you know, let, let, let's just our heads together and really resolve this because we just wanted to break down stereotypes and break down all these stigmas that were placed on Africa and even with the business initially some of the things that were thrown at us was, oh we can't trust for our information to be sent to West Africa we can't trust for people to log into our accounts from Africa oh how is their English oh are they capable of doing this oh is there stable internet there and it's like, wow, <laughs> I can't believe I'm having these questions <laughs> thrown at me. And it's like, I, I grew up in a, um, a small town called Berry, um, Great Manchester. That's where I grew up from the age of 11, right, until I went to university. And my mum still lives there. And um, some of the things I encountered and experienced growing up, I thought were just because I lived in a small town. But then when you work with businesses and you hear some of the mindsets certain individuals have, you realize it's not just individuals who live in a small town. You have this perception of Africa. It's a lot of individuals who potentially never traveled outside of the UK or they only know Africa through what they've seen through the media. So their idea of Africa isn't of a progressive, growing, intelligent, beautiful continent. It's of some sort of poverty-stricken, lack of accessibility to all things, living in shacks, not beautiful buildings, poor internet connectivity, just things that they've been told. And it's like, that's not Africa. That is not Africa. Africa is beautiful and it's mm-hmm. we we've been saying it for a long time about changing narrative and educating people and so on and so forth i just want to come out and do it physically and show everyone that listen it can be done and most importantly over the next decade there'll be four to one africans to europeans over the next decade our numbers on this continent we're growing rapidly there are so many people Africa and when you even look at the size of the continent it's a lot of land but then there are as many opportunities as there are people so there needs to be more individuals coming here creating opportunities for people to work and to showcase their skills there needs to be when people think outsourcing people always think Asia India Philippines we want to change that when people think outsourcing we wanted to think Africa, we wanted to think excellence, we wanted to think the best outsourcing is from Africa through remotely, little plug. But we want them to see things differently. <laughs> <laughs> we want them to see things differently when they think of Africa outsourcing and, and, and the skill quality of individuals out here. And that's how they should see it. And all your talks like, Go on, go on, Samuel. Tell him, tell him again, tell him again. Because then it's now they need to know. Because the amount of when people talk about education, like come on, like you said, 
people got more degrees than than letters. Like it's just re- absolutely ridiculous. And people are so educated, they're hardworking, they're diligent, and they can do so much more if they have an opportunity to to do that. Yeah. And it's so great for you guys to actually be like, we're not just saying it. Here's here's the work in action. Here's why we are growing because people are trusting us. And not only are they trusting us, but they're actually getting great service back in return. So they're seeing that trust being repaid and they're seeing the quality of work coming through and they're also recognizing and seeing things for for themselves, which is what you need to do when people... It's the best way to disprove people's... All right, you can talk all you want, but here's the actions behind it and here's the evidence behind it and that just shuts them up one yeah. time. And those who want to hate are going to hate. Like, when I bun, bun them. <laughs> I ain't got, ain't got time or energy for with those kind of people. <laughs> and with your... How did you decide on who your first hire was going to be and what was it about that person that was that had to be key? To well, right? you know, that's, that's a really good question because we weren't sure about that. We interviewed a group of people and then we actually decided that another individual was going to start first and that person wasn't available. So then we asked Milady, who was our first beer to start when she couldn't. She was like, you know, sure, she can start, she can do it. But one thing about Milady that stands out is her attention to detail, her communication, the way she articulates herself and her presence. And we knew that, yeah, we, we have a good a good member of staff in her. Saying that she's actually been promoted one, two, she actually she's received her third promotion today. She's now she's now country head, head of UK, of all our UK um operations, just something operation director now, yeah. So she now oversees all the team leaders, wow. um, virtual, senior virtual assistants and VAs. And, and now Ellie, who was our second hire, again, coincidentally, because we don't actually promote based on time people have been here, promote based on who's the best. Ellie's now the head of control, head of USA now. Um, and he was our second hire. So um, we were honestly so, so fortunate with the first two hires. Because, bro, some of the people we interviewed after, God is good. God is good. Some of them were just... <laughs> Not the greatest interviews at all. Like they were. Uh, I remember one interview we did. One one guy was um, went to let's say it was about three thirty. His interview was for three thirty came, three thirty went. The guy hadn't turned up for the interview. So Kwame and I were like, you know, cool. Let's just give him five minutes to see if he comes. Five minutes. Kwame didn't turn up to the interview. It was a video call. Ten minutes gone. No no show. So Kwame and I were just talking in general. Like, ah, oh, let's just lock off the call in a few minutes. Um, if he comes, we're not, we're not even going to entertain him because he's late. And then we saw like um, admit entry on Google Meets. Um, Once we admit entry for the individual, we're like, ah, let's just let him talk. He comes onto an interview. He says nothing. He just looks at us dead in the eyes as if we owed him money or something. And I was looking, I was like, ah, my guy, you've come to interview. You're late. You've got your head in your hands. As if you're annoyed or something, are you not going to apologize for turning up late? He looked me dead in the eyes through the camera. Oh, so I'm late. I locked off my camera. Locked put my video on me. <laughs> I messaged Kwame on WhatsApp and said, Kwame, please, I, I beg you just conduct this interview in it because if I talk right now, yeah, <sighs> let me not talk in it. Kwame, you just do the interview. He was like, oh, bro, I think you just jumped on the guy. I think you just jumped on the guy. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. So we did the interview and he was just horrific. Like his mindset, the way he was the individual, he was terrible. And I was like, that nearly put me off actually um, um, wanted to conduct more interviews out here. I was like, if this is the caliber of individual we're going to get, then I'm not on it. But that, again, that, that was just me being very um, impatient, a bit annoyed because again, you, you get those individuals everywhere, regardless of where you are, everywhere. Mm-hmm. Not just individuals who just... Um, are overly entitled. I think that something's owed to them. They come in just like just not really um, ready for the role. Um, but what we did is we created strategic partnerships with universities across Ghana, mainly HS University, which is one of the most prestigious universities in Africa and around the world. In 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 and around the world, and they 
um, allowed us to get access to their um, alumni network, which allowed us to put jobs before them and they would apply. And um, that was really good because then we got a really high level of individuals who had working experience, good, good degrees or good educational background, two, three, four years working experience, and they'll come then to work for us. That really raised the bar in regards to um, the level of individual we were employing. And then obviously through their network, they would then refer people to work for us, who would then refer people. And then we're connected up universities who would then bring us the same caliber of people. That's how we grew our, our staff. Because then the bar can't go in, the, car, the bar can't go low again. It's at a high level. And um, yeah, from there, we've just literally kept at that level and employed people of that caliber, which there are loads here, there are loads here. But again, um, we just have to be careful because of the what our demands are from our clients. We work with big organizations and and small and individuals, entrepreneurs who just need excellence, whether you're big or small, you just need excellence. So if you're not getting someone who can just deliver, it's difficult because then it's like an individual will only see remotely through the person they're communicating with directly. If they're having a bad experience, they will turn around and think, oh, remotely is organizations or unorganized, remotely is bad, remotely is not good. So we have to make sure that every individual is at a high level so that when they work with people, people can say, you know what, this is the bar that remotely set. This must be what all their staff are like. And that was it. Have you also been very intentional around taking the lessons that you've learned from the UK and the good and the bad experiences and Kwame's learned as well and applying that to create like a really good culture of psychological safety within the organization and 100% 100% because um Kwame and I again we've we've we worked in the UK for most of our careers and um I don't really like going on about bad experiences and things that have happened because again um, most of the black men or black individuals listening to this podcast will know how difficult it is <laughs> working um, as a black professional in certain industries and it's like it's, just, it's, it's repetitive the stories are the same and it's like yeah but um, the main thing was the culture um, when you're black in the UK you're always on edge at work and a lot of people will know exactly what I'm talking about, that feeling of you coming to work, not wanting to make a mistake, knowing that eyes are on you, knowing that all your work is being put under the microscope, knowing that any little slip up, oh, this, all oh, that, you could do a hundred things right. The one thing that goes slightly sideways, people will pull up. Your colleagues will be doing a hundred things wrong. The one thing they do right is then praise. And I was like, that feeling, I don't want to have any of my staff to have in this business. Um, I want everyone to be acknowledged, to be pushed, to be appreciated, and to be acknowledged within the business. Not sidelined or ignored or discredited. And um, I remember one incident in the last workplace I worked. I was there for two of my birthdays. And my first, they, they, they did this thing where um, every year they would, um, when it's someone's birthday in an organization, they would do this thing where they would um, get a cake for the person and they would, everyone would come around and sing for them for their birthday, blah, 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 blah. Literally everybody. Coincidentally, for my two birthdays, the first year didn't happen. I thought, you know what? The funny thing is, I'm not a birthday person. I, I again, I, I, I'm not really, I don't care about birthdays. I'm not that kind of a person. The first year they didn't do it for me, they just chose not to do it. And I thought, you know what, that's, that's strange. We've done it for literally everybody else in the department. Why is it that for my birthday? I thought, you know, maybe they forgot, coincidental. But then my client partner at the time, my manager, sorry, was like, um, oh, happy birthday, Sam. What did you do for your birthday? What did you do for your birthday? And I was like, hmm. So you remembered, but you chose not to include me in this thing. All right, I see you. I see you. I see you. My second birthday comes around. I thought, you know what? I'm in another team now. Let's see what happens this year in it? Because there have been birthdays before mine that these men have been celebrated. But when it comes to mine, somehow you and quiz that you forget, let's see what happens. Again, year two comes around, they did the same thing. I was like, mm. if I was a person who cared about my birthday, that would really hurt me. That would really, really hurt me. Because then you've 
ignored or not acknowledged or just pretend like I don't exist. But a few weeks or a week after, you've done it for everybody else. But because I'm not that kind of person, I want too fast. As long as my work has been acknowledged, that's what I care about. And I thought to myself, in this business especially that I'm building now, I don't want anyone to potentially have that feeling where they feel as though people are deliberately forgetting them, or not including them, or doing things to make them feel like they're not a part. So again, we celebrate everybody's birthdays, everybody gets a cake, everyone's recognised. Um, um, and it's a very fun place to work, but they work hard. Um, and I want I don't want anyone having that feeling like I had in the UK, where you're just always on edge, or other black people have. But I say that, but in Africa, or in Ghana especially, they don't understand the concept of racism, because we're the majority here. So even having conversations or even explaining to them some of my experiences growing up in the UK, they don't get it. Do you understand how beautiful it is speaking to people and trying to explain to them what institutional racism is? I love it. And they're like, okay, so you were not allowed to progress because of your skin color. Hey, so how were you sure your skin color? And it's the same conversation for in the UK. Hey, it's hard to prove racism you hear sometimes because of the way they'll do it and you'll be trying to talk through it. So when trying to talk to someone who doesn't understand it, it's like, all right, it's because one time, yeah, I, I did this and, and then my food did that. And then, and, and then you're trying to explain it to them. They're like, okay, so hold on, let me just get that straight. So you try to explain to them, it's like, I love it. I love them, I love them kind of conversations because they don't get it here. They don't get it. And it's amazing. It's beautiful being out here and not having that feeling of being the edge, being appreciated, being acknowledged, just being the part. Like, it's the first time in my life, bear in mind, I grew up in Berry. Berry. Greater Manchester. It's the first time in my life I've not felt out of place. I've not felt like people are staring at me. I was walking around the shop the other day in Ghana, in a supermarket. I legit turned around to see who was following me in the shop. This is how bad it is. As a black man, you feel like someone's definitely... I turned around like... Usually in the UK, I'll do it. I'll catch someone out. I'll be like, yo, my guy, don't, don't worry. I'm not, I'm not doing nothing. I did it the other day. And Federico was like, are you right, Samuel? I was like, oh, um, I was checking if someone was following me. She's like, I do the same thing. Well, we burst out laughing in the middle of the shop. And they were probably thinking these people are mad. But it's so beautiful to not be followed around shops. Something as simple as that, to not get stopped for no reason. It's like... How do I describe it? I just feel at peace for the first time in my life. I have peace. And I didn't realize how nice peace was until I moved to Ghana. I have no stresses. I'm at peace all the time. It's amazing. It's amazing. Wow. I would say it to I would say it to a lot of people. I was born, I was born in Nigeria. I was like, it's when I came to the UK mm. as a teenager. Is when I realized I was black. People were like, what do you mean by that? I was like, I think I was black. I knew I had white people around, I had Indians, all that kind of stuff. I traveled. But when I was in Nigeria, I'm I'm in a population of millions and millions of people in the country that has the most black people in the world. So I'm not thinking about me being black, but you landed in the UK one time, oh you don't know, like yeah. <laughs> they, they ain't not mistaken that you're reminded, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so with yeah. your how do you define leadership the reason I'm pausing for this question is because my definition of leadership changes or has been changing um, every year and um, my definition of leadership is individuals who are able to inspire people to work with them and to help push in a common direction. And great leaders are individuals who are able to raise people up to be able to take over from them if they're not around. For me, that's great leadership. And um, over the course of the last few years, my understanding of leadership's changed because I would always look at certain industries or certain individuals who I defined as great leaders 
And as I'm getting older, I'm realizing that maybe they weren't great leaders. Maybe they were good managers or maybe they were just good, um, I don't know, people who were able just to take people from one place to another. But as leaders, were they really great? Did they inspire the people around them? Did they really get people to buy into their values and their mission and their vision? Were they great leaders from that perspective? Were they able to raise people up to be able to take over if they weren't there? So leadership or great leadership is what? That, that, that's how I would define great leadership. Hmm. Who are those kind of people? I'm just, I'm curious. What a great leader would look like? No, who, who were you looking at previously and then now you're like, hmm. Uh, um, I, again, we, we, we uh, hey, let's, let's look at business leaders, right? So, um, mm-hmm. I always had this ideology that um, a lot of business people were great leaders. And I'd always look at them as like, they were amazingly, the way they'll stand sometimes, the way they would not be not not be strict, but they would be very assertive with their staff and where they'd walk around the office, they'd have a sort of presence around them. Like, oh, that's great leadership. That's great leadership right there. That's, that's, that's amazing. But, um, I, I, I had mentoring sessions when I was at the Guardian with Wonder, Chief Revenue Officers, um, and I remember during one of our sessions, we sat down, we spoke, and he was like, when he became a leader within the business, he always had an idea of what being a leader or great leader or a, a great leader was, and he was trying to emulate the things he'd seen in other leaders or the things that he um, wanted to be seen as, but he was like, the more authentic he was as a person, the more he was himself, and the more real he was, the more people liked him, and the way the more people bought into what he had he had to say. And again, great leadership is also just being yourself. At the end of the day, you can only just be you. People buy into people. If people buy into you and they understand you, they'll follow you, and they will be allowed to be led by you. Whereas if you're not authentic and you're, you come across somewhat fake, um, people will see through that and they won't buy into you and they won't want to follow you on a journey because they'll be like, ah, this person, like, are they even a real person? So that would be my definition of being a great leader. Sprinkled off of authenticity. Authenticity is key. It's key. goes mm-hmm. to the different aspects of great leadership. Yeah, I like that. You um, you spoke about your, you mentioned your wife a number of times. What's been the couple of the biggest lessons that she's she's taught you, that marriage has taught you to help you grow and develop as a man? Wow, marriage. Um, I wish someone had told me it's not easy from the beginning. <laughs> I, I wish someone had told me it's not easy. Yeah, um, and, and that, that's the truth. I, I wish someone had like sat me down to be listen, marriage isn't easy. I think a lot of times you um, have this um, image of marriage that's portrayed where marriages are portrayed to be easy or um, or more rosy, but it's not. Um, marriage and love and choosing to be with someone is, is it's a choice you have to make every single day. There are times and days where you just don't feel like wanting to do certain things or you don't feel as though you're in love that initial feeling that you had of the the years ago feeling but it's a choice it's a conscious decision you need to make every single day and that's a lesson that marriage has taught me that you need to make choice every day and stick to what you've decided you want to do you can't just want to do something and decide oh i don't do this no more or um make a promise and not keep it because it's not easy or as easy as you want it to be. It's difficult. And that's what the biggest lesson marriage has taught me that life isn't easy. Things things don't always go to plan. Things happen, things go wrong. People, human beings aren't perfect. We all make mistakes. Um, we have to compromise on a day-to-day basis on things I've learned all these years of my life and had to unlearn. She's learned, mainly to unlearn. Come together as now becoming one, having to then create that oneness in 
two separate entities that are now together having to figure out what's the best ways to go about things. And that's taught me in my marriage, in business, that especially working with people from different diverse backgrounds, cultures, understandings, the way I see things or the way I want things may not be the best way all the time and I can't always have things my way. It's about working with other people and collaborating and listening to other people and compromising. When I say compromise, not compromising things that I know are wrong or compromising things that will um, be a, have a negative impact on me, got compromising things where I know I can and should in order to make someone, accommodate someone else and accommodate their feelings, their concerns, their needs. That's what I mean by compromise. And um, a lot of times we choose not to do that. We, a lot of people want to just do things that benefit them and don't want to see someone else's perspective or don't want to be the first to apologize or don't want to allow someone else to have the same level of confidence they have. You need to in marriage, in business, in life. And that's what marriage taught me that, um, yeah, it's, not, it's, it's, it's a choice you make every single day, man. And it's not easy, but it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Definitely worth it. So, yeah, my biggest lessons. Nice. Ah, see, smooth. See, it's nothing. <laughs> 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 so, one thing that people might not actually recognize that you just talked about quite quickly is. Even though you guys are based in Ghana, your organization's actually a diverse company. Yes, yes. Uh, so one, one thing we did ensure that we maintained our head office is actually in London. Our head office is in London. Um, we uh, The majority of the staff in regards to the outsourcing part of that business work in Ghana. However, we have, we have team members around the world. Um, our head of sales, who's British, who now lives in Lithuania, Simon, um, he is in Lithuania. We've had salespeople in India, Egypt, America. We have a sales guy currently in Ireland, in the UK. Um, so, and again, the, the makeup of that team is very diverse as well. So, yeah, we're a very diverse organization, especially in regards to how we push and promote women in the business. Um, I've always said that women need to be as equally represented at every level of the business to ensure that um, there's diversity of thought at every level of the organization. And diversity of thought is key because we cater to different audiences, different mindsets who um, are able to, if we're able to get leaders who are able to fit into all these different demographics, we're more representative as a business. And we're able to have different lines of thought as a business. Whereas if it's just our leadership team or just all males in a certain age, category, certain ethnic backgrounds, then we're not diverse and our line of thinking is diverse because we'll all pretty much think the same way. But because our leadership teams are very diverse, it allows us to have a more open perspective on ways, things we can do and directions we can take the business in. Since it's the end of the season, I thought let me ask this quickly. Arsenal, how are you feeling about where we ended up? Arsenal? Honestly, bro, um, my heart can't take talking about Arsenal into too much, in too much depth. Genuinely, like it got to the beginning, the beginning of the season. I saw we were doing all right, and then as we started progressing into the season, I genuinely said, and I was, I was doing my fantasy football league and everything. I stopped. I stopped the fantasy football. I stopped watching football. I just locked up. I said, this year, I can't have. You know the heart palpitations and, and, and the stress and the anxiety and the anger. I said, this year I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. I need to focus on my family, my wife, my kids, my life, my business. Arsenal cannot cannot come and kill me in 2021, so I stopped, bro. So honestly, the way, where we finished, even looking at where we're going at some point in the season, the grace of God has allowed us to finish where we are, so we just, we just accept it like that. Just pick it like that. We're all right. We did all right. Well, we didn't. But we did. When when we I saw a league table recently, um, looking at um, if Arsenal's year had been just twenty twenty one, but I think would accumulate the third the third most points behind um, City, 
United, and then us, I think it was meant to, it, it showed on the chart. So I think 2021 was a decent year for us, but overall, it's, it's painful. It's painful. <laughs> <laughs> you just touched on, on, a, on an emotion that I know a lot of a lot of people go through. I, I personally had to stop watching football for a while because I'm like, it wasn't it wasn't healthy for yeah. for my emotions. It wasn't healthy for, <laughs> for me trying to chill on the weekends. And like, what's, what's, why, am I, why am I stressing myself out about people playing a game that has zero impact on my life and they're just going about Ooh. making their money doing what they're doing. So let me just take a step back and just spend spend some time with my family, JJ. You know what you I mean? Know? It's painful, bro. Wow. It's painful. Being an Arsenal fan... We're the most loyal guys in it because we've stuck with this team through the thick and the thin. Whilst other individuals have suddenly started supporting Man City and started rekindling their love for Liverpool, we've just been, all United fans dropping off for a while, we've just been there. We're loyal guys. We've not, we've not shifted. We've not budged. <laughs> but it's painful being an Arsenal fan. It's so painful. So my last question is, what's, what does the future hold? What's that big dream that you, that you want to accomplish? Wow, wow. Um, I will say in regards to remotely, specifically, um, I want remotely to be the biggest outsourcing business in Africa. Um, I want us to really change the way outsourcing is seen and perceived around the world. And when people think outsourcing, I want people to think Africa, not Asia. Um, me personally, um, I want to create opportunities for young people across the continent. And I want to really help the overly skilled individual in, 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 on the continent just to get into work, to be able to provide for their families, to feel like they're meaningful, to feel like they're doing something with themselves, to, to just want feel like they're doing more. And I want to give them those opportunities, which they're more than deserving of and capable of doing. There's nothing here for them right now. So that's, that's my dream for Aboli, the outsourcing vision. And um, when people think outsourcing, it's not just the bricks and mortar. We're not just a like, we, we We have a lot of tech that backs our business. And eventually, um, we'll release that in regards to what we're building. And this, it, it, yeah, we're, we're a tech company. And, and the platform we're looking to, we'll, we'll be launching soon to really help us solidify that position. But um, that is the big dream. Okay. There you go. There's more coming. <laughs> Cooking up a little something in the back. Okay, I see. No, I see it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, we are. We are. We're working. We're working. We're working. Nah, that's definitely. That's definitely good to hear. And that's elevation. And even just listening to the journey, the story, what you guys have created, and with having no funding, starting during the pandemic, and growing and growing and growing, it's it's so dope and how people people recognize that if they want great service it's there it's available for you all the links and stuff are going to be in in the show notes where you can tap a lot more into remotely and what they do like i said great team um i've met melandi as well actually and she's she's brilliant so i've definitely been co-signed as well and um samuel and what he and kwame are building like we need more and more people like you guys who are innovative, what taking the learners experience that you've got to create opportunities back home. Because that's how we're going to start change things. We moan and complain about stuff being hard in the UK, but what are we actually doing to change things back at home where there's so much, such a high demand and we can utilize that experience? That's what you guys are doing. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. In fact, I suppose to ask you faith. Faith mm. is important to you. Mm-hmm. Very, very. It's literally like um, I've said it numerous times. A lot of people, I think, in business shy away from speaking about their faith, or in in corporate world in general, they 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 they, they see it as somewhat unprofessional to speak about their faith. But that's something I will and I can't shy away from. Um, the way in which we've grown and the innovative ideas that keep coming to us. I can't even attribute any of that to us. Some of it is just God. And when I see how things are just falling into place, um, the big and the small, and how quickly we've grown and we're growing, the connections we've made, the people who are reaching out to us, doors that are opening, the opportunities that come our way, 
it doesn't make sense. And um, in regards to the faith specifically, um, the way I always describe faith is believing in something though it's not there, as if it is, and holding on to it as if it's there though it's not. And that's what we've done with this business. When no one else could see it, when no one else believed in it, and when no one else was back it, we saw the business as if it was there and we pushed it as though it was there and the vision that we've had for it, we've pushed as though it is what we had in mind. And again, just like Faith, some people didn't believe it, we did. And as we've had faith in this, our faith is now bearing fruits, where people are now seeing what we want, what we believed in, and are testifying that, yeah, you know what, you guys are doing it. Obviously, some people that discredited us or told us categorically, it will not work. This will not work. What you've done, what you're doing, we've people have tried to create a blueprint for years. <coughs> Sorry, in Africa, which many have, and unfortunately, they've not been successful. But we, we've genuinely managed to create a strategy that's just worked. And even the way things have fallen into place, it's, 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 it's just faith and, and, and our faith in God that's enabled that to happen. So um, that, that's why it's so key to me. And I, 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 I can never, ever discredit or my faith or not talk about it and its importance to it in, in my life and this business. So, yeah. That's a perfect, perfect place just to, to end this, man. I appreciate your time, the bars and the knowledge that you've dropped on the podcast, Samuel. Thank you. Thank you. This is Everyday Leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Leadership. You can check out the show notes on www.mindsetshift.co.uk forward slash podcast where you can find out more about my guests and how you can contact them you can listen to old episodes or if you have a question about this episode or any other episodes you can just press a button and ask me that question and i'll answer it on the next episode don't forget to subscribe comment share this podcast with someone else we'll see you next time on everyday leadership